morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. Thank you to the generous underwriters of Sharper Iron, the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. And Luther Classical College, a college for Lutherans by Lutherans, opening in fall 2025. Learn more at lutherclassical.org. On this Thursday, May 25th, we're studying Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 to 17. In today's text, the Lamb opens the fifth and sixth seals of the scroll. John is given to see the souls of those martyred for the Christian faith, followed by a vision of the great day of the Lamb. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Stephen Preuss. Pastor Preuss serves at Trinity Lutheran Church in Vinton, Iowa. Pastor Preuss, welcome back to Sharp Iron. Good to be back. So we get started today, Pastor Preuss. Give us your general thoughts on the book of Revelation as a whole. How should we approach it as Christians? Why it is a helpful book for us? Yeah, Revelation is, uh, it's got great fascination for a lot of people uh, and has ever since it was written. Uh, just because, you know, we see so much of the uncertainty in the world and we want to know kind of what what's going to happen in the future. And, you know, John gets this revelation of Jesus Christ uh, to, to, to see what's going to happen. And so for a good reason, the church has an interest in it. One of the things we should always remember about Revelation, though, is that it's one of those books of the Bible that should be read after the others. You should have a good scriptural understanding before you go to it, because so much of it is referencing the Old Testament. Uh, and you, you need to be able to understand what the Old Testament is pointing forward to in order to understand this apocalyptic literature, this, this revelation uh, of, of things that, uh, that have not yet happened. Uh, so as we do look at Revelation, I think it's helpful for us to kind of take an historical view of this, that, that what revolution, Revelation is doing is it's presenting kind of in a symbolic manner uh, the history of the church from the, the time of Christ to, to the last day and then into eternity. And it's, it's happening in, in seven visions, um, and it's, it's, each one is, is covering the same period of time. It's what we call the age of the church, uh, and, and each vision is going to then uh, kind of give the same events but from a different perspective and maybe adding a little bit more as it goes on. I, I find that to be kind of a helpful look at it because otherwise you have people just kind of jumping into Revelation and just, it's all the symbolic language. You can turn it into pretty much whatever your mind or your church or your group wants it to be. So letting scripture interpret scripture, relying on the clear passages of the rest of scripture can really help us uh, as we read through this and see what is the time between Christ coming and the end of the world when he comes again and then into eternity. What's that? What kind of predictions does God have for us uh, during this time? So as we hear John describe what he's seeing in this text, looking at what is happening between the time of Christ's ascension and his return, we're going to look at the last part of chapter 6 today, which is the fifth and sixth seals. For the sake of being able to, to talk about these things in a little more detail, we split up the seals. So give us some context. What have we seen before? What do we need to know as we prepare to look at this part of the vision of the seals? 
We are in the middle in chapter six of a section of Revelation uh, where we really have the first of the sevenfold vision of history, uh, which starts at the cross and, and then ends at the end of the world. And so in this section, uh, we have the seven sealed scroll that is introduced by the Lamb of God. And we've already heard now about the first four seals that the Lamb of God opens in, in verses one to eight. Uh, our text for today is verses nine to 17. And so in verses one to eight, we hear how the Lamb of God opens each uh, of these seals and there, the four winged creatures invite John to, to look at the four horsemen and their horses. And these four horsemen and horses are, are wreaking havoc on the earth, causing a lot of suffering on the earth. And so the white horse we hear brings uh, tyranny. Uh, the, the bright red horse brings bloodshed and war. The black horse brings hunger and famine. The pale horse brings death. And so John sees these four horsemen ravaging uh, the human race throughout history. And this will continue till the end of time. And so God's people uh, in particular will have to suffer through uh, a lot of, of these tribulations, which are being described here. Uh, and, and that leads us then into our section for today, which actually speaks, speaks of the fifth seal that the Lamb of God opens. And we'll get the sixth one as well before there's a little bit of an interlude in, in chapter seven. And it changes the view that John has from earth and what's going on on earth to what's going on in heaven as these things are, are kind of, or these things are taking place uh, here on earth. All right, so we get the fifth seal to start, a view of what's happening in heaven, switching up from the view of earth that we saw in the first four seals. So this is Revelation 6, beginning at verse 9. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, and the great ones and the generals, and the rich and the powerful, and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come. And who can stand? That's our text for today. That is Revelation 6, verses 9 to 17. So, Pastor Price, we've got the fifth seal, the first one in our text, John sees under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God. So let's talk about the who, who are these people that he's seeing. These are uh, the martyrs, uh, and they we know are, are the martyrs. They were slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. So not only do they believe the word of God and hold it as precious, but they actually uh, confess with their mouths what they believe. Uh, whether these be uh, preachers or it be Christians who, who witness uh, to the truth of what they know from, from Christ. 
And uh, this would include not only those who lost their lives. You think about some of the saints that might be more popular to people in their, their minds. Maybe they've heard of them, Saints Polycarp or, or Lawrence or uh, Lucia or uh, during the Reformation, right before that, John Huss, many, many others. I'm only you know, mentioning a few there. Uh, but we think about those who, who lost their lives in the early church and then throughout uh, the church. Um, and then also those martyred in our day. Uh, we still will see that, you know, our, you're not going to see it if you turn on just the basic uh, news stations or cable news stations or just about any news station, um, but they, are, they do report it. Um, and uh, if you go to the right sources, I know Touchstone Magazine will put that in there, a magazine sometimes, and uh, others just let you know what kind of uh, persecution the Christian church uh, is, is suffering even in our own day. But it also talks, it references those who will be martyred in the future before Jesus returns. Because again, we're, we're speaking about the time between Jesus' uh, life, death, the resurrection and ascension, and then and when he comes again. And so that's who these souls are. Uh, we could also add that, you know, the word for witness is where we get the word martyr. And so all Christians are martyrs in that sense that they all witness to their faith in Christ with their mouths and lives. And uh, Jesus says that whatever persecution comes upon us, even to the point of blood, great is our reward in heaven. So these are the souls uh, of the martyrs uh, and, and the Christians who, who confess the truth uh, and who have been slain. Now, John says that he sees the souls of these martyrs under the altar. We've heard of the heavenly throne room in Revelation chapter 4 and 5, but the throne was the central point. You've said that this is a vision of what's what's happening in heaven. So what's the, what is the altar? Yeah, the altar is what we would think of as the incense altar uh, in, in the temple. Um, it's before God's heavenly throne. Uh, and it's a symbol of the prayers of God's people. So in the Old Testament, as we know, the priest uh, prayed and offered incense on the temple's altar for God's people as the, the people prayed outside. And so to here, God's saints are acting as, as priests. They are praying for God's people who are on earth, uh, who are also priests and suffering on earth. Uh, and so we should look at that kind of when it talks about the martyrs under the altar, as we're going to talk about what they said, we can see that they are actually praying um, and they are praying for those who are here on earth. Uh, it should also be noted that the martyrs offered their very lives as sacrifices to the Lord during their life um, and in their own death are, are offering up their lives as living sacrifices uh, all the way to death. Uh, they will continue to confess Christ and serve their neighbor by, by first of all, confessing the truth and, and loving one another uh, as the fruit of their faith. So these martyrs here under the altar, uh, speaking there at the incense altar, are offering uh, prayers uh, of, from God's people on behalf of, of God's people. All right, so they're crying out with a loud voice in verse 10, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Talk about the prayer that the martyrs are offering here. It's quite the prayer. Uh, they're crying out to the Lord who reigns over all. Uh, he is holy, he's set apart, he is true. Uh, he is the only truth. And uh, we know that here they see that if he is the holy and true sovereign Lord, 
you know, why are you delaying in judging and avenging their their blood, right? Those people who who killed them, uh, and those who are killing Christians all the way throughout uh, church history, and so they recognize, you know, that like the blood of Abel, the blood of the martyrs cries out for vengeance, and the, this vengeance belongs to the Lord, not them, and they know that. And I think that, you know, today Christians have been taught that well, too, that vengeance belongs to the Lord, not to them. And so they know to pray for their enemies, to love their enemies. But what is often left out is that he doesn't just say, Scripture does not just say that vengeance belongs to the Lord. It also says he will repay. And so it'll be in his due time, but he will repay. And these martyrs know that. And so they are asking for this avenging of the blood of their brothers and of themselves, because not just because they're, you know, sick and tired of the waiting, but also in faith. I mean, if you think about it, they're in heaven, right? So this isn't just a, an impatience. They're concerned about God's reputation. Uh, Christ's name is dragged through the mud and profaned here on earth, and it should be honored. And his word should be confirmed as true, not looked at as some fairy tale or myth or, or fable or whatever. And so here, these prayers of the martyrs should be looked at, I think, most especially in that way. How long until you're going to do this uh, and you're going to bring about that great vindication where Christ, who has ascended to the right hand of God, who is, is you know, all knees are one day going to bow before him. Uh, whether willingly or unwillingly, and those that are unwillingly doing this, you know, when are you finally going to make them do that and cast them away so that they're not dishonoring your people and your precious name and word? Talk a little bit more about this, because I, I think the prayer that the the martyrs are offering here in Revelation 6 sometimes catches us a little bit off guard, because we're not I don't know that we are always taught, or maybe we, we just haven't done a good job of teaching the church how to pray in this way. On on the one hand, we do know that that we rejoice when we are persecuted with the apostles. Jesus says to rejoice and be glad when you're persecuted. They persecuted the prophets before you. And so on, on the one hand, there is that that joy to be joined with Christ in his sufferings. On the other hand, there is this prayer of, of how long and we we long for that vindication. I like that word that you used. We long for that the making of all things right that will come in the last day. And so we pray like this. So I mean, is talk a little bit more about this, how we as Christians might start to pray like this a little bit more. I think the the imprecatory psalms might come into play here. Mm-hmm. Talk a little bit more about how we might might add to our prayers in this way. Yeah, it's, it's kind of a, a paradox, I think, for Christians to just consider that you are to pray for your enemies and, and wish that they repent of their sin and join us in the Christian church and in, in clinging to our Savior, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. And so continue to do that. Don't ever, ever stop uh, praying for the repentance of, of those whom uh, Christ has died for uh, in the sense that, you know, God does want all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. But you also have to realize that there are those who have hardened themselves and that God eventually will harden like Pharaoh um, because he will then use them as his own instruments to bring about his own, his own good for his church. 
And so there are those who, who we know will be punished and should be punished because of the injustices that they do, the wickedness that they do against Christ's people and against innocent people. Um, and so we should want God to execute that judgment. He will repay. And so uh, pray that he would execute the judge judgment and pray for justice in God's own time and manner. Um, and it's, again, it, this is a concern for the reputation of God. God's reputation is most important. I often teach this when I teach the eighth commandment and the second commandment that they relate, you know, you, we care so much about our name and don't want others to put our name down. Um, but what about God's name? God's name is to be honored above all. That's why it's the second commandment and not the eighth. And so, uh, we should long for that great day of vindication and we should pray that those who will not repent and those who continue to persecute the church, uh, would eventually be cast away from our Lord's, uh, um, sight and away from us. And so that all evil would be separated from us so that we might, uh, honor God's name forever and live in his glory forever without any of that evil. Uh, and so you, you do have to pray for both. Uh, and, and understood correctly, um, I know it's hard to navigate for people, but understood correctly, you can believe both at the same time, that you want your enemies to repent, but if they will not repent, and if they are hardened, that you want them to be punished and, and cast away so that we can spend eternity in, in bliss uh, with our Lord and with all of his people. Yeah, and I, I think to, to maybe help tie that together is that the fact that, that we're doing, we're praying in both circumstances, I think is really important because when we're, we're praying, we're asking the Lord to do what is good and right according to his own will. And so, yeah. especially when it comes to the, the prayers for vengeance, the imprecatory Psalms, the fact that we are praying it to God means that we aren't the ones doing it. We are asking God to accomplish what is good and right in his sight. And that really, I mean, that does, that takes it out of our hands so that we're not the ones seeking after vengeance, but we're asking God to do what is right. And I, I think the fact that we're praying these things is something we, we should keep in mind and maybe helps us then to start to offer those prayers rather than think they're somehow like off limits. No, we're, we're asking God to do what's right. And if we know that what he does is right. And so we should ask for it. Amen. Yeah. And, and just one last thing is that our context here is in reference to the last day. Right. Uh, uh, and God does use, you know, for example, the governing authorities as agents of wrath uh, in his time. And so it's, it's not wrong to, to also desire that God use those agents for the sake of justice in the here and now. We just need to realize that's not going to be perfect. It's going to be far from it. And the perfect justice will only come uh, when our Lord Jesus returns. Yeah. Now, as we're talking about the saints in heaven praying, this may be a, a slight tangent, but I think it is worth a moment of discussion. As, as Lutherans, you know, we know that we don't pray to Mary. We don't pray to the saints. But here in the scriptures, we do have an example of the saints in heaven praying, and you said for us, for the church here on earth. So how do we rightly understand this praying of the saints as the scriptures give it without going into some of the Roman Catholic errors that are there? Yeah, you know, we, we do talk about this in our Lutheran concessions. And so, uh, you know, Luther says, for example, in the small called articles, the angels in heaven pray for us, as does Christ himself. 
so do the saints on earth and perhaps also in heaven. And he's referring uh, here to, to Revelation 6, uh, verses 9 to 10. He then just says, it does not follow, though, that we should invoke and adore the angels and saints. So we, we clearly do not in, invoke the saints or the angels and, and pray to them. But, I mean, it shouldn't be hard for us to understand that if Christians were praying here on earth, that if they go into the bliss and rest of, of heaven, that they would continue to pray. Uh, now, their prayers are going to be shifting a little bit, and we can't get into the details of everything that they're saying, but we do have some example of it here that they're, they're praying for us. And um, the intercession that they have is, is not something that they derive of their own authority, but it is from Christ himself, who is the intercessor for our salvation, which he did once and for all on the cross, but that he, for the sake of his church, is interceding at God's right hand continually. So for our salvation and for the answer to our prayers, we pray only, only to Christ and through Christ and the Spirit um, to our Heavenly Father. But uh, to, to believe that the saints are still praying uh, in heaven, I don't think is really that much of a stretch. Uh, they, they clearly are, are brought to their completion in their souls in that way. And, um, and they should be looked at as those who continue to, to intercede in prayer up there as well. Yep, I, I think that's a very helpful answer. I appreciate you referencing the, the Lutheran confessions on that so that we would continue to confess the same thing as the church today. Now, the saints are praying there in verse 10, as we said, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? In verse 11, they receive an answer. And the first part is that they were each given a white robe. This will become important, especially as we get into chapter 7. Talk about the white robe that they are given. Yeah, I just, it's so tempting to just jump into chapter seven right away, right? <laughs> I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a Scandinavian heritage, and I love my Behold a Host arrayed in whites during, you know, All Saints Day and all that, that season of the year. Um, so we'll leave it for, for the pastor that gets the privilege of going through that beautiful text. But here, let's just, just talk about what the white robe symbolizes. It's the salvation and righteousness of Christ that, that covers them so that they are righteous in God's presence. Uh, and they were clothed with Christ when they're baptized. We know this from Galatians 3, um, that we have put on Christ in baptism. And, uh, and so because of this, they now stand holy and pure and righteous before God. Uh, it's, a, it's a symbol that we will use in our baptisms uh, when we uh, give the white uh, garment uh, as a symbol of Christ's righteousness. It's a symbol that we will use in the pall on, at, at funerals uh, to show that this uh, body will be raised uh, and will be perfect, um, just as the, the soul is perfect in Christ uh, in heaven. And uh, it's, it's really a, a beautiful image for us. Uh, here in this text, I would just kind of point out that the white robes also serve as a vindication of the martyrs, uh, that this is the way God looks at them. Uh, they are uh, those who by faith are, are righteous and holy and then have as fruit of their faith the faithfulness that comes from uh, the Holy Spirit as the fruit of their faith. And it also shows then God's faithfulness toward them. He, he fulfills his promises to them. They are righteous in his sight through faith in Christ, and his righteousness does cover their sins. 
and um, this is a, a great, great then vindication of them by God to give them these white robes. Uh, and, and this is the case even until the judgment uh, of, the, of those who killed them, um, that they'll be vindicated on the last day too, uh, not in a, in a sense of, you know, evil pride that we will look down at them, but in the sense of, of great honor uh, that God is true to his promises to us and that the lamb does reign and is victorious and was vicariously uh, sacrificed um, and so that we, we now are righteous in him. And so uh, it's, it's a complete vindication as well. I think that point needs to be brought out in addition to the fact that it symbolizes uh, Christ's righteousness. So with this thought of vindication, I mean, I, as you were talking there, my mind went to, to Psalm 116, where, where the Lord says, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death mm. of his saints. And that's kind of what you're seeing here in Revelation chapter 6, when the white robe is given. He is telling these saints, your, your death was not in vain. Your death was, in fact, actually precious in my sight. Uh, do not lose heart. And, and then as a strength or an encouragement to those, and again, I know we're, we're hearing about the souls of those who have been martyred there, there on the altar, but to those still on earth, this then serves as an encouragement for that faithfulness unto death. Look, the Lord does not forget about those who confessed his name all the way to the end. In fact, he vindicates them. Their death is precious in his sight. And he continues to, to call them and claim them as his own, even here, giving them this white robe. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's you know, all of this I look at as a commentary on Jesus' Beatitudes, too. Mm -hmm. uh, that, I mean, he, I like how it says it in Luke, where he says that we, we jump for joy when you're persecuted. And uh, because our reward is great in heaven. And here is, here is the reward, the vindication of you know, to be told that you were faithful when you know your own sin, you know your own struggles, and yet God has delivered to you through his means of grace uh, the righteousness of Christ that covers your sins. And from that comes a faithfulness, no matter how stained with sin it might be, a faithfulness to want to, to do that with courage, uh, which is for the sake of Christ and his church. And he then says, well done, good and faithful servants. And this is just another image of, of showing that, uh, of not only are we righteous in God's sight through faith in Christ, who is our righteousness, but we also are vindicated. It's, it's just a, it's too much for us to, to take in, uh, but it is most certainly true and should give us great, great uh, eagerness uh, to, to be in heaven with our Lord. Such wonderful comfort given through the pen of St. John here in Revelation chapter 6. We're going to pick up more of this on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron on KFUO. We're talking to Pastor Stephen Price this morning. We will be right back. Please stick around. Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love.
Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Thursday, May 25th. We're studying Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 to 17 with Pastor Stephen Preuss. He serves at Trinity Lutheran Church in Benton, Iowa. Pastor Preuss, prior to the break, we were talking about what the saints receive in answer to their prayer. They're given a white robe, and then the text says that they are told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Talk about this rest and how long it is to last. The rest is exactly what we know the rest to be. It's the peace that we have uh, because of Jesus. Uh, Jesus gave them rest and peace through the forgiveness he bought by his blood and, and through the heaven which they are, are actually uh, in right at that moment in the midst of this vision that St. John is seeing. Uh, you know the, the words well. We all know those words of Jesus that are so comforting. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And so this rest was promised uh, in the Old Testament. Uh, we know it as the eternal Sabbath rest, which the Messiah would bring about. Hebrews speaks about that in chapter 4. Uh, and again, we, we experience this rest in faith on earth, but we'll experience it in heaven too. And that's what the martyrs are experiencing I will we'll experience it again finally in the resurrection. But here the martyrs are being told, rest a little longer. Uh, it's really, uh, it's it's kind of a, a nice comfort to think about that they're thinking about us and want, want that final day of resurrection to come where the Lord and his people are, are vindicated completely uh, before all. But uh, he says, yet even as you're waiting, you still have this, rest in this peace and, and enjoy it uh, in heaven. Hmm. Now, they, he, they are told to, well, before we talk about the little while longer, I think just the, the fact that it is called a rest, if, if I remember right, you and I talked about Lazarus in John chapter 11, and where yeah. Jesus says that, that Lazarus is asleep, and we talked about the sweet names of death. I think this is another one, isn't it, that, that death is oh, a rest? Yeah. Yeah, it is. And this is this is uh, yet another, you know, you brought up Psalm 116, um, that we are blessed, you know, this is another sweet name of death. And you find them all over the scriptures. And they're not just the ones that, that Francis Pieper mentioned in his Christian dogmatics, which is what we had talked about before. Uh, and, and that thanks be to God has kind of uh, come out into to the open for a lot of people to take, to take great comfort in uh, recently. But to think, think that your, your loved ones are at rest. I mean, we do put on our, our gravestones, R.I.P., Whenever I send out a message to the congregation that somebody has has died, R.I.P. Right, rest in peace. Uh, and we're not just talking about the rest of the body; um, we're also talking about the rest of the soul, and that it is at peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And that is what we have through faith now, and that is what we will have in heaven. And all of our loved ones who've died in the faith have right now in heaven. And this is what Saint John saw with the martyrs, and uh, they were told to continue. Uh, to rest a little longer. I mean, it's it's kind of a strange thing to hear because it's like, okay, you're going to enter into this unbelievable rest in the resurrection, but enjoy this rest right now. Mm. Uh, and so he just, my cup runneth over. Yeah. And, and so that's what they have. It's good for us then to see that heaven is a, a wonderful place where they do have that rest. Um, and at the same time, they are going to have an even more complete rest in their bodies reuniting with their souls uh, in the resurrection. And, and that's what they're longing for in heaven, 
even as we long for it here on earth. Yeah. Yeah. That's a fantastic comfort right there. So what is the, what does it mean then that they are to rest a little longer? And he specifies until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. What's the, what's the until when part of this? Yeah. Um, it either refers to, you know, when, when all of the, the fellow believers are, are brought to the very last Christian who's converted, or it refers to until their fellow Christians on earth have completed their mission in martyrdom, and then the Lord avenges their, their lives himself. We're not quite sure, but either way, you, you kind of get the point is that you're going to rest until that day when all Christians have been, uh, been brought into the kingdom that that he has uh, planned to to be brought in, uh, and all of of their mission it will be will be done. The spreading of the gospel that that God has wanted to uh, go forth into the world uh, throughout the centuries until the last day. All the martyrs have been uh, martyred to the very last man uh, or woman, and the Lord uh, then avenges their lives Himself when he uh, comes back and uh, separates the sheep from the goats, if we can mention Matthew 25 or any of the other parables that Jesus gives, and finally uh, comes with that great day of wrath. So that great day of wrath, and it seems, is right where John goes with the sixth seal. So just to, to kind of keep the progression in mind, in the first four seals, we see the four horsemen that describe the the havoc that comes upon the earth, that the the world in which we live, the suffering that we endure, and that's the earthly perspective you were talking about. Then in, in the fifth seal, we have the heavenly perspe- perspective. This is what the saints are, are praying in heaven. Now it seems that the sixth seal takes us back to what will happen on earth on that last day that the saints are waiting for. Is that the—am I tracking that's, there? You're tracking, yeah. And so this is the end of all things, and you know they're proceeding and accompanying— uh, disturbances in the cosmic sphere, right? So that's kind of where we are in this sixth seal. Okay, so with the sixth seal, then it's opened. John looks and he sees all these cosmic appearances. Talk about some of the the background that m- might we might need to understand what John sees there in verse twelve and thirteen. Yeah, I'd mentioned kind of in our introduction today that you know you really shouldn't be reading Revelation without a constant referencing to the Old Testament. So it's kind of helpful to, to read the Old Testament first. And there are a couple of, of uh, prophecies that I think are worth bringing out here. Uh, the first is in Haggai uh, chapter 2, where we hear, For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. And so uh, here we have a prophecy of uh, the shaking of the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. Uh, We also have in Joel uh, uh, this prophecy from chapter 2, And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood. You see that very much there in Revelation uh, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So there you also see the great, great day of the Lord. Uh, uh, Joel also has where in chapter three, the sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. And of course, uh, we know from uh, Jesus that there are all sorts of cosmic disturbances that are going to happen. 
uh, that precede in a company his coming at the end of the world. So as far as these prophecies being fulfilled, uh, we should see that these had been prophesied long ago, and they're simply coming to their fulfillment um, as a Haggai, Joel, and, and especially our Lord Jesus had prophesied. One thing I did want to bring out about kind of a unique way of expressing it is the sun becoming black as sackcloth. I, I find that interesting because sackcloth is a symbol of repentance. So you would you would wear the sackcloth and and cover yourself with ashes. And it's there's there's something here then about a, a reminder that only through repentance are we able to avoid the judgment, you know, as we cling to Christ and his forgiveness. And so, you know, I'm not exactly sure how to take that except for that maybe we should look at it as the Lord's desire was that they like, you know, uh, Nineveh, you know, or, or like anyone who, who was in gross sin and had, had been sinning against the Lord would put on sackcloth and ashes and, and had they done this and just clung to Christ, but because of the stubbornness of their hearts, they wouldn't, you know, this is why this judgment is coming upon them, but it didn't need to. And so there's like a hidden mercy of, you know, I wanted to, I longed for them to be gathered under my wings, as Jesus says, but they were unwilling. And, and so, you know, in, even in the midst of judgment, you see that he was not the God who just did this willy nilly or just kind of in a cavalier manner, but did it because they refused to put that sackcloth on, refused mm -hmm. to repent. Uh, and I just think that's something to bring out. Well, and if I can try to piggyback on that, I, I think not only is that hidden mercy there with just the mention of sackcloth, but some of the ways that these signs are seen on Good Friday, I, I think it's even maybe a yeah. little more than hidden that, okay, so here we are seeing the last day as we're going to talk about this is the day of their wrath has come. But we see a lot of these signs come on a different day of wrath where the wrath falls not on on us as sinners, but on the one who took our sin and made it his own Jesus so that, you know, as if you're reading the book of Revelation and you're, you're seeing this, like, well, how do I escape from this? Or how can I stand as, as the question ends? Of course, we're going to see who's standing in chapter seven, but the, the way that you stand through this is through the one who experienced the wrath of God in your place. The one who was yeah. crucified under the sky that turned black and there was a great earthquake and there was the the centurion who repented on that day because he he saw the way that he died and i i think i think that's even a little bit more than than hidden i i think that's there yeah absolutely and we're going to uh when we talk about the wrath of the lamb i want to pick up that point because it is such a good point that we need to make is that you know god has his judgment in the law he has his judgment on the cross of Christ, and he has his judgment at the end of, of all things. And it is through the gospel that we have there on the cross, where Christ took God's wrath and judgment upon himself for us, that we have the answer to both the law, on, you know, when it is proclaimed to us, and the answer on the last day, where we have that great comfort that though everything is uh, going to be destroyed and darkness uh, comes upon the earth, darkness already came upon the earth for us in the person and work of his son there on the cross uh, so that we through faith in him need not fear that great day of wrath, but can cling to the gospel of Jesus Christ, to the Lamb of God, 
and be confident when that day comes, lifting up our heads, uh, as Jesus tells us, yeah. because our redemption is, is drawing near. Yeah, yeah, that's a fantastic, fantastic connection to make. When we, when we look at these various signs that are spoken of, the things that he sees, the earthquake, the sun becoming black, the moon becoming like blood, stars falling from the sky— there's been several of our guests who have warned against something that that one of them termed newspaper exegesis to to be careful of of you know reading the newspaper or watching the news or scrolling through twitter or however you get your news these days to be aware of looking at current events as a way of kind of interpreting these things and i think with this one especially like was it blood moons i'm not even sure what that is pastor Preuss, but i'll hear about a blood moon every once in a while and you'll hear some some preacher will try to make a claim about Jesus coming again soon based on how many blood moons there are or something like that. I'm probably not even getting it right. How how do we how do we take certain like signs in the sky like a blood moon or an eclipse or or you know shooting stars things like that? How how do we take that in relationship to what's being spoken of here without falling into that so-called newspaper exegesis? Yeah, I mean if I'm not wrong a a blood moon is with there there's a total lunar eclipse and it's a very rare thing and so it's i i think that what they're trying to do is they're trying to uh do fear mongering Hmm. rather than preach the gospel but what we can say is that there are things going on in the world uh in in the cosmic sphere that should bring reminders to us for for sure of what will happen when he comes again and so i i don't think we should extend it beyond that um, lest we start making people think that, oh, this is, we can now predict when Jesus is coming back. I mean, this is kind of the danger of Revelation where people start to make literal, you know, it's just amazing. It's like the Lord's Supper. People will, will say that's, oh, that's clearly a symbol when he said, you know, it isn't. It is, right? It is his body. It is his blood. And then when there are symbols, they'll take them as literal things. Uh, it's just kind of an annoyance. But, um, no, here it's clearly meant to be symbolic language uh, in the sense of uh, trying to help them understand uh, what will be be going on. Um, and, I mean, one of these things that he mentions here is the sky vanishing. I mean, he talks about like a scroll. I mean, he's trying to make a comparison. And, you know, scrolls cut in half, and then each side just kind of rolls back really quickly on its spindle. Um, and it just kind of gives you this picture image. It's kind of the point. Um, that the mountains and islands are going to be moved, right? I mean, just think about them, an island just picked up out of the out of the ocean. It's just an amazing thought, things just disappearing from the earth. Um, and so we, we need to see that he's using some picture language to articulate real truths and and not get into trying to see the signs and then predict things that are coming. We should be ready at all times. We know that. Um, and I don't know if you want to add anything to that, but I'm sure many of the others have have talked this to death. Maybe no, that, that was that was very helpful. I, I think you you explained it very well, and especially in the context here that we are talking about these signs in the sky. So in verse 15, then we start to get the response of of people, and it seems like just about anybody and everybody is is mentioned from top to bottom. Talk about the the people that that are mentioned and what they begin to do as these things take place. Yeah, some of the ones who are mentioned, we've got uh, the kings of the earth, uh, the great ones, the generals, the rich and the powerful. And then it just says everyone's slave and free. So just kind of covering the gamut here. Uh, and they hide themselves in the caves and among the rocks of, of the mountains. 
Uh, and this very much uh, reminds us of, of the reaction of Israel and the prophets as well. But just to kind of cut to the point, they'd rather get crushed in an avalanche than face God as unrepentant sinners. And they're pretty much doing what Adam and Eve did in the garden. They're running away, but at this point it is too late. They should have repented uh, and received in faith the invitation of the gospel of the victorious lamb. Uh, it reminds me of Psalm 2, uh, especially when it starts off with the kings of the earth there. You know, but Psalm 2 talks about how the, the they try to break their bonds from the Lord and, and his anointed, um, but he, God holds them in derision. You know, he, he laughs. He set his son on his holy hill, and he, he is the one uh, whose wrath is, is quickly kindled. And so we should repent and, and find our, our, our Savior in Christ. And, and so uh, what they're going to face, uh, it's just it's a futile thing to try to hide, but they're going to try. Yeah. It's just a sad, sad picture. Uh, it's also, again, a, a vindication of the Lord. Um, after all these people who are so great and powerful and rich and, you know, reigning here on earth have to face the one who reigns forever and ever as we end all of our prayers. So as these, as these people begin to hide or attempt to hide, they call out. So unlike the saints in heaven who are praying to the Lord, here these folks are calling out to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Talk about that that prayer, especially about the thought of hiding from the one seated on the throne, and especially the wrath of the Lamb. Here we come to that phrase that might strike us as a bit unusual, to think of the Lamb as wrathful. Yeah, it is, it is unusual in the grand scheme of Revelation and of Scripture and the way that we think about the Lamb. Usually we think about the Lamb with mercy and forgiveness, but here it is, it's wrath. And again, it's because God gave uh, the execution of judgment uh, to his son, Jesus. Jesus is the Lamb of God uh, who takes away the sin of the world, we know. Uh, but, but here, since Jesus bore God's judgment as the Lamb of God on the cross, that's how he takes away the sin of the world. He takes God's judgment as the Lamb. He is sacrificed. He spills his blood um, because he is the one who bore God's judgment on the cross, as we, we talked about earlier, he is also now the judge of those who reject him as that vicarious and victorious Lamb of God who bore the sins of the world. So if you want the, the Lamb of, of God to benefit you, well, then don't cast him away when his, his word is proclaimed to you, but receive him in faith. And if you continue to be hard-hearted, and you continue to say, no, I don't want him. I've got other things that are more important than, than the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Well, then the very opposite of what you want uh, will happen. Um, you, you will face the wrath, the very opposite of what he wants. And that's more important. He doesn't want to, to, to do this. He, he came to die for the sins of the world. Why would he want to have the wrath upon you? But it will come upon all those who stubbornly in their own, uh, you know, persistent unwillingness, uh, reject the Lamb of God. So it's a sad thing to see it that way, but it is the reality, and it is good for all of us uh, in that anyone who does reject the Lord, the Lamb of God, will not be 
uh, a part of us anymore when he finally comes back. Yeah, hearing the way that it, it's spoken of here, the, the day of their wrath reminds me of the way that the Old Testament speaks about the day of the Lord. In several of the prophets, this is the preaching. And, and there's, a, I guess I'm particularly thinking of, of the prophet Amos, who preaches against those who are desiring the day of the Lord to come because they're desiring it without repentance. They're, and, and he tells them, yeah. it's not going to be a good day for you. And I, I think that's kind of what we're seeing here in Revelation chapter 6. So I mean, thinking about that prophet or the, the preaching of the prophets like Amos when it comes to the day of the Lord and what John sees about the day of the Lord here, I mean, help, help us so that we, help us hear it so that we would hear what we need to hear, have the, the proper fear of God from it, but also not lose the confidence that Jesus would have, have us have in, as you were saying, that when we see these things happen, we should lift up our, our heads how do we keep those two things in, in tension as Christians? Well, if you are outside of Christ, uh, then you have no forgiveness, and and you will face his wrath on the last day, and they ask, uh, and who can stand? And the answer is no one. Uh, you know, this whole section, chapter 6, is, I mean, it, it's a, full of a bunch of terror, right? Um, there's woe and lament even for God's people. Um, but the thing we have to understand is that, that John did not despair, um, and, and therefore neither should we. You can imagine how much the law would pierce him to, to, to picture yourself as one of those who is not on the Lamb's side, but it, uh, is facing his wrath. I mean, that's a terrifying, terrifying thought. But he still remembers the, the vision of the glory of God in heaven and Christ Jesus' coronation there in Revelation 4 and 5 uh, with the 24 elders, right, representing the church, all enthroned around him. Um, and he also, you know, though you know, he knows there's going to be the suffering now, but he knows the Lord will bring about the glory through the victorious Lamb. Chapter 7, we're not going to get into it today, but boy, are, are we in for a treat. It's, it's just the most beautiful passages of Scripture. Um, and it's kind of an interlude in this section of Revelation that will give to John that beautiful and hopeful and comforting vision. So who can stand on the last day when you don't have Christ? Nobody. But if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. And so we fear him now and, and trust in his forgiveness uh, and, and confess our sins and, and call upon the, the name of the Lord, knowing that he helps us, that he has that forgiveness for us, that the Lamb of God purchased for us. Uh, and he is delivering to us through his means of grace, of baptism, of the preached word, of, of absolution, of, of the Lord's Supper. He is delivering that to his people. So trust in that now. And that wrath has already been spent. The cup of God's wrath has been, has been gulped up by Jesus on the cross to its very bitter dregs. So that now you take the cup of salvation. And, and you can trust that you have a merciful Lord. Uh, in, in that, that way. So, yes, it is a terrifying thing to think of coming before God on the last day with the judgment uh, that the, and the wrath that the Lamb will come with uh, upon those who reject him. Um, and so we cling to him and say, you know, you've, you've already drunk this up for me. And so I am so uh, able to rejoice even in the midst of, of the fear and trembling. I can rejoice. Uh, because I know I have uh, a living uh, Lamb of God who who has done everything for me for my salvation and is longing, even as I long, 
uh, to bring us to that eternal rest. And, and I suppose with, with all that in mind, that really takes what happens in the fifth seal and hearing the prayers of the saints under the altar, that makes that all the more comforting. With all the terror that's happening in all the other seals, the first four and the sixth, it is those who, who have remained true and faithful to the Lord Jesus, even unto death, that are given the white robe and are given rest. I mean, again, you talk about that idea of, of vindication. The, the ones that are going to stand, as we will see in chapter 7, are the ones that we've already heard a little bit from in this fifth seal, the martyrs, the ones who remained faithful. And that really does, I think, putting all these things together really gives the fifth seal quite a bit of comfort to know that no matter what is suffered, even as we suffer it for the sake of Christ, there is that vindication in him and in him and in him alone, that's where we stand. And I, I think that you know, the way you were describing it, really then the emphasis then on the fifth seal and the comfort that's there to hear the answer given to the saints, that's that's a wonderful thing. Just about a minute here to wrap up, Pastor Preuss. I think that one last thing that could be brought out from the Old Testament, kind of piggybacks on what you just said there. And I, I just want to talk about the end of the Old Testament and Malachi 4 where he says, for behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. And so, this is a prophecy that is fulfilled in Christ and that ultimately we, we certainly see that the evildoers will be stubble and, and this day is burning. This is a great wrathful day. It is only uh, a wrathful day for those who do not fear his name. And for those who do, who trust in Christ, uh, you are headed for the son of righteousness who will come with healing as, in his wings. Um, I love that image. I'm, I'm, I'm now in Iowa and I've been here 11 years. Mm. And so I see calves from the stall all the time and I see them leaping and I think, oh, that's the day. That's the day. It's a great day. Uh, it is a day of vengeance for those who, who do not believe in Christ, but for those who trust in Christ, uh, it is a day for us to look forward to. It is a great day, not just in the sense of, of him bringing about his great wrath upon the evildoers, but him bringing to us that eternal salvation that the Lamb of God has won for us. Pastor Stephen Preuss is pastor at Trinity Lutheran Church in Vinton, Iowa. He's been helping us today to study Revelation 6, verses 9 to 17. Pastor Preuss, thanks for being our guest today. Thank you. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. If you have any questions about these fifth or sixth seals in the book of Revelation, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. You can also use the app, the open mic feature there allows you to send a message to us. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.